0: I was in a safety training a few years ago i don't remember what it was about or like what it was for but the trainer was talking about oxidizers and referred to them as the jerry springers of the (laughs) chemical world because as he says they are the instigators and i will never not find that funny Like every time i get the opportunity to tell somebody that they are the jerry springers i make sure i tell them (laughs) yeah that's the perfect analogy. (laughs) It really is. I'm Paige. And I'm Megan. And this is Spooky Science Sisters. Hello, you're listening to Spooky Science Sisters, a podcast where we present to you a science-based and probably very giggly discussion on all things strange and unusual.
1: We are coming back to the world of lab disasters for this episode. And our theme this time is explosions. (laughs) Because what could be scarier than academic or industrial labs not having proper safety regulations in place and blowing people to bits as a result? (laughs) Exactly.
0: Uh, (laughs) But before we talk about that, as always, we have to do our something spooky. Yay. So, Megan, you actually have something today. I do
1: have something. I recorded this in a note in my phone so I would remember it. <laughs> <laughs> but, so my three year old daughter is very into birds because my parents, her grandparents, have apparently turned her into a giant nerd already. <laughs> But she has a little bird book and she loves to look at the pictures with us. And she's like going through this phase, which I think is like a developmental phase, where she's developing a sense of time, like things in the past, things that are happening right now, things that will happen in the future, but do not think she quite understands how it works. (laughs) Or she like gets them mixed up. So we're looking at this bird book. And I'm telling her the names of the different birds as we go. And there was one bird where she saw it. And she said that, Oh, I saw that when I was 16. And another one she said she saw when she was 13. (laughs) And we got to the turkey vulture. And for that one, she said she saw it when she was a kid. And I quote, when she was a different kid. (laughs) So, I don't know. (laughs) Some sort of like weird developmental stage slash past life business happening right now. (laughs) I don't love it. Fun stage.
0: (laughs) It's so fun. Paige, do you have anything spooky to share this week? Nothing new really. I remember when we first moved into the house, so like... I don't know, almost a year ago now. Yeah, that's crazy. I know. That's That's spooky. spooky. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember like when we first moved in, I had talked on the podcast about how we had heard this like weird thumping sound and we were like looking all over for it and could not figure out where it was coming from.
1: Yeah. Do you mean that like loud sound that we heard that one time or something different? what
0: loud sound like the growling from my no do you remember it was like
1: the middle of the night and like there was a really loud thud and it woke all of us up. And the next morning, you were like, thanks for waking us up, assholes. We were oh, like, things for waking us
0: up, assholes. <laughs> no, we did find out what that was, though. Oh, what was it? Elliot had like a backpack or something hung in the closet of the guest bedroom. So the room you guys were sleeping in. Oh. And it just like slipped off in the middle of the night. Oh, goddammit, Elliot. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> anyway. uh, woke the whole <laughs> flipping house up. But no, this is like a thudding. But it's as if like somebody was standing in our kitchen and just sort of like stomped their foot good (laughs) and like it start we noticed it like the first couple of weeks or the first month or so that we were living here and it has not stopped at all we thought that maybe there was an animal living in there it was maybe our vents were like contracting and expanding but still like every night and it's weird because if you come upstairs you can't hear it you can only hear it in the basement we have no idea what it is and we have now had several guests over who have also heard it and nobody can figure it out. So don't know. Fit. Definitely haunted. <laughs> Nothing's really changed with it. It's just still happening and we don't know where it's coming from.
1: Yeah. It's not like specific to when like your dishwasher is running or something. No, we hear it every night. No clue. Okay. Then we can move on to lab disasters, which arguably is more like chemical disasters.
0: Yeah, but I am going to talk about one that I don't believe is chemical related.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, so yours will actually be academic lab story this time, and mine will be the industrial one.
0: But I am talking about another one as well. I threw in some notes on. Oh, okay. I mean, it's like, I don't have much on it, but... So, yes, I'm going to start this off by saying, before we even get into the topic, that we have not recorded in like three months. <laughs> uh huh. So, I'm very excited that this is the topic we're coming back to. And if I'm a little uh, <laughs> dusty, that's not the word I'm looking for. Rusty? Rusty! <laughs> the other word she's going super great so far (laughs) yeah then that's just what happened that's it's been three months so Uh give me a break um okay so (laughs) this is not a topic that like i would normally consider to be spooky but the stories that we're going to talk about are like Definitely scary, and we thought it would be an interesting topic to discuss. And we've talked about lab disasters before, so why not talk about them again? Sometimes we're spooky science, and sometimes
1: we're scary science. And for my part, I argue that if I end up dying, because I work in a lab, if I end up dying in some horrific lab explosion because whoever I was working for wasn't following proper safety regulations, then I will definitely be coming back to haunt those assholes if that's a possibility. So I made it spooky.
0: <laughs> there. Now it's
1: spooky. <laughs> now it's spooky. It
0: counts. Uh, it counts. It counts. And, We've both worked in labs, so before we got started and our stories and the topics we wanted to talk about today, we thought it would be fun to share personal stories. I mean, hopefully fun. Hopefully there wasn't anything too terrible that has happened. They'll never find them. (laughs) (laughs) So Megan, do you have any personal stories you wanted to share first?
1: So I have not set anything on fire or exploded anything (laughs) yet, importantly, (laughs) But when I started my last job, and I think I've told you this before, I had to do a bunch of hours of online safety training. And there's a whole batch of trainings that they sign you up for depending on what lab you're going to be in. So I start going through this new job. I've like just moved to a new city and I'm getting going and I'm thinking like, okay, this is stuff I've done before. So, you know, shouldn't be too bad. And then one of the trainings was for using pyrophoric compounds (laughs) safely, (laughs) which pyrophoric means that if it comes into contact with air, it spontaneously combusts <laughs> so this whole training is like a bunch of diagrams of like how to properly seal off tubing and like what to do if there's an accident like all these like different apparatuses for containing these different gases and compounds and I was like what the fuck did I sign up for like (laughs) I thought this was rocks like I no one told me I thought this was rocks (laughs) that things could potentially explode So then I think I mentioned it to the person who was like transitioning me into the role and he was like, oh, yeah, that was an accident. I should have signed you up for that.
0: (laughs) I didn't know it was an accident. That's so funny. I was like, thank God. I thought it was just like an awareness like, hey, this is going on in the building. No, no, no. Yeah, like no one
1: was doing that anywhere near me. I didn't have to do it. It was just like he just accidentally clicked pyrophoric compounds when he was setting up my training. So I did it. (laughs) That's funny. But it did reaffirm my choice to never work with paraphoric stuff because it sounds like a nightmare. (laughs) All right, Paige.
0: Sounds like you've caused some more damage, so. I wouldn't say I caused any damage. (laughs) Uh, um, So I have, with the help of a couple of people, started a very tiny lab fire. Very, very tiny. Shame, shame. Uh, um, So we were working with palladium on carbon as a catalyst for a reaction we were running and it frequently ignites when it comes into contact with methanol or like other flammable solvents but we were specifically working with it in methanol and I mean that's really it we put a little bit of methanol in there and then boom we had a little bit of a fire (laughs) and fortunately I worked with two lab partners at the time who were like very quick to react because I was just like oof (laughs) like who knew years later I would end up in safety because like at that time I was just like what do I do Uh, take the wheel (laughs) but I will say that I am sort of grateful that we had that issue early on because later in like one of our steps was to place the reaction under hydrogen pressure oh no oh so we were yeah using a hydrogen generator and yeah very explosive. So we could have caused a like serious explosion or at least a very serious fire if we hadn't been like, oh, we think we did something wrong. What do we need to do better? (laughs) So I'm just sort of grateful that it was small and that they reacted very quickly and that it happened when it happened and not later steps when we were throwing some hydrogen gas in there. So that was my lab fire story. And then obviously working in the safety field, like I've definitely heard and read some very terrifying stories from other facilities and labs. You know, we always like everybody passes those things around. So, you know, once one of your safety friends hears it, everybody's heard it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but a lot of what I have dealt with or heard about have not been fire or explosion specific. So, I feel very fortunate that I've not really had to deal with that. But I did want to mention that recently, so it was like, March, I think of this year, there was the Walmart distribution center fire. And I just wanted to mention it because it had happened earlier this year and, like, it happened relatively close to home for Megan and I. Um, And I remember you and I talking about it when the news first broke. But for those of you who've not heard about it, it was a 1.2 million square foot distribution facility in Indianapolis. It's since closed due to the fire. They weren't able to salvage any of the building. But It has been like five months now since that fire broke out. And I looked earlier today and they've still not found any answers as to what started it. And like all of these people have been displaced and had to find different work because of it. So it'll be interesting just to see what happened there. But I just wanted to mention it because it was really recently. It was just a couple months ago. Everybody got out, right? You know, I think it was like a fifteen hundred people or something worked there and every single person got out. Yeah, I think I was mixing it up with
1: the Amazon warehouse where the tornado hit it. Oh yeah. That was very sad. Which
0: also happened
1: recently. So anyway, this episode might be a bummer. Uh-
0: <laughs> <laughs> will be. Definitely will be. <laughs> I may or may not have teared up reading about one of the things we're gonna talk about today, so <laughs> Which, for the record, <laughs> I have cried in several meetings about people being injured at work. So, yeah, <laughs> I argue that, that I think that's a good thing. Maybe. I mean, it probably is. You're empathetic. <laughs> you care.
1: <laughs> <laughs> OK, I thought we would start out by talking about what makes an explosion, because there are a couple of for lack of a better term, common ways (laughs) to make that happen in these types of environments. So generally speaking, explosions in industrial or academic lab settings tend to be the result of improper storage of either flammable solvents like alcohol. So like Paige mentioned, the, the methanol they were working with, or strong oxidizers like hydrogen peroxide. So more or less like it's human error, right? It's people not following safety regulations that they should be following or the proper regulations aren't in place in the first place. So in the case of alcohols, like ethanol, they have high vapor pressures, which means that it's easier for them to transfer to the vapor or gaseous phase. So in simple terms, The vapor is just the strong smell that you sense when you, for example, open a bottle of rubbing alcohol. And it's the vapor that is what actually ignites when these chemicals catch fire. And the hotter they get, the more vapor they produce and the more potential for fire. And the Higher their vapor pressure, the more potential for <laughs> fire. Another important characteristic to consider is the solvent's flash point. So, the flash point is defined as the minimum temperature at which a liquid gives off vapor within a vessel in a high enough amount to form an ignitable mixture near the surface of the liquid. So, basically, how cold can it be to still form enough vapor to ignite? And so here's the thing about alcohols. So common alcohols like rubbing alcohol, or you might know it as isopropyl alcohol, ethanol, which is just grain alcohol or what we would just commonly call alcohol that ends up in your mixed beverages, (laughs) (laughs) and acetone have flashpoints of 11.7 degrees Celsius, 12.7 degrees Celsius, and minus 18 degrees Celsius, respectively, so well below room temperature, if not well below freezing, they can still produce enough vapor to create like an ignitable amount and catch fire. So, not great. The lower the flashpoint, the more flammable the liquid, so the acetone would be the most flammable of those three. And essentially, all it would take with many of these is a spark to ignite them. So accidents have happened where large amounts have been stored improperly. And again, once it ignites, more vapor is created as it heats up and you just get this runaway reaction where you just have more that you can ignite and, you know, it keeps going. So the other common type of chemicals that can be responsible for explosions are oxidizers. And... I'm going to be honest, like oxidizers, reducers, all that stuff. It's like a concept in chemistry that for so long has been so difficult for me to grasp. Like I always have to look it
0: up despite it being like a fairly simple concept. So, you know, it's funny because I understand especially after like working in safety like I better understand the hazard and like understand oxidizers but like I yeah frequently had to look up what did it actually mean or like when you're talking about like how the electrons are moving how that's happened it's like I it Mm -hmm. I struggled with it a lot Mm -hmm. too (laughs) yeah
1: and it's in that way it sort of means two different things so if this gets a little bit confusing like rest assured that we are also confused (laughs) 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 No, I think I've got it this time. I think I've got it. But okay. An oxidizer honestly sort of is what the name (laughs) suggests, but it's a chemical that isn't necessarily flammable itself, but according to the dangerous goods definition, which I'm sure Paige already knows, (laughs) can cause or contribute to the combustion of other material.
0: And I can't remember if I've ever mentioned this on the podcast before or if it's just something I've been very excited to share with everybody, but (laughs) I was in a safety training a few years ago. I don't remember what it was about or like what it was for, but the trainer was talking about oxidizers and referred to them as the Jerry Springers of the Uh chemical world (laughs) because as he says, they are the instigators and I will never not find that funny. (laughs) Like. Every time I get the opportunity to tell somebody that they're the Jerry Springers, I make sure I tell them. (laughs) Yeah, that's the perfect analogy. It really is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The oxidizers are there to just make the situation worse and more volatile than it would have been (laughs) otherwise. (laughs) So in very simple terms, or at least as simple as I could make them and like still, I don't know, not make my own brain explode, but oxidizers in explosions are transferring electronegative atoms like oxygen to whatever substance they are interacting with. So they get a lot of oxygen in there quickly. To drive the explosive reaction. And most commonly, these are things like nitrates, chlorates, and perchlorates. Hydrogen peroxide is also a very common oxidizer. Dynamite uses sodium nitrate, ammonium nitrate, which is a nitrogen fertilizer. Is also likely familiar to people as it was used in the Oklahoma City bombing and they used over 4,000 pounds of it. We're going to talk about what happens when you have a lot more than that
0: later. Yeah, and I was <laughs> going to say um, so I won't say too much because I know you want to talk about it later, but so many of those like disastrous like industrial explosions involve this like ammonium nitrate it's every time you know like these fertilizer plants and stuff they're dangerous places i mean you should be so
1: excited page because i have a whole psa about like how we can fix the problem and like what steps need to be taken hell yeah that i got from like i'm here for it a safety website so get excited (laughs) this is gonna be my best page impression Um, So for some oxidizers at high enough temperatures, the oxidizer itself can also become explosive. So again, you get in this situation where you just get this runaway reaction. So something causes the explosion to happen or the oxidizer is helping to get oxygen in there and drive the explosion. Right. Like fires like to have oxygen. Right. Mm -hmm. But then the oxidizer gets too hot and like it starts Exploding as well. So it's not a great situation. <laughs> so, the way that we split up this episode, now that we sort of understand, right, explosions in sort of, or most of the explosions that happen are either some sort of flammable solvent or we're talking about an oxidizer. And the way that we split this episode up is that each of us is going to focus in on a specific, or in your case, maybe a couple different specific incidents. That have happened and why they happened, maybe a little bit about what we learned from them, stuff like that. So, Paige, I can't tell if yours is more depressing than mine. So, you go first.
0: We might be ending on a bad note, though. <laughs> yours is more depressing for sure, but... okay, uh, just. <laughs> As a note, the only other like explosion that I wanted to talk about or fire that I want to talk about was the Walmart one. So I'm just talking about the Texas Tech one now. When we first decided to do this episode, there were like a bunch of stories that came to mind about you know what I could talk about. But I ended up landing on an incident that occurred on January 10th, 2010 at Texas Tech. And while it's not as large scale as some of these like big chemical plant incidents that you read about, I do think it's a good one to talk about because there was a pretty extensive investigation done on it with a lot of really good documentation. So we have stuff to talk about with it. This appeals to the environmental health and safety
1: nerd in (laughs) page. You right. But also, you know, it has to be bad. Like, if this is what the EHS professional picks to talk about, it's got to be good.
0: Well, and it happened like relatively recently, so I think that it's likely that some people remember it. (laughs) Yes.
1: So I was actually in grad school when this happened. Oh, you remember it? Yeah, yeah. I was in my first year at grad school, and. I, we used to have weekly lab meetings with our lab manager, and I remember him like specifically sending out emails about this and us having a discussion about it because it was like such an important example for proper lab safety and chemical storage and stuff. So I'm excited to
0: get the deets. Awesome. Well, here we go. So like I said, this occurred in a Texas Tech lab. It was a fifth year grad student who was mentoring a first year student on a project that was part of the alert or the awareness and localization of explosive related threats program. Which is sort of an ironic. (laughs) Right. (laughs) exactly situation <laughs> um, and this program is specifically focused on energetic materials and the security risks that are associated with them and so energetics are materials that have high amounts of stored chemical energy which when released can produce heat sound gases they're very sensitive very reactive materials think things like explosives propellants things of that nature To me, this research sounds amazeballs, but also, (laughs) like you said earlier, these things are scary, but it sounds pretty awesome. Like, it'd be a cool project to work on. This probably
1: falls firmly under the, like, no fucking way is Megan doing this category. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do enough weird shit at work already. Like, I'm not doing this.
0: So this particular project required them to synthesize or make and characterize new energetics. And so on January 10th, these two grad students were supposed to be synthesizing nickel hydrazine perchlorate, which was a material of particular interest to the ALERT program because of how lethal it can be, but also how easily accessible the materials are to
1: make it. Gotcha. And like lethal in terms of
0: like it's very explosive or causes a lot of damage? Like, what does that mean? I believe because of how explosive it is. Okay. And as I mentioned earlier, this is an energetic material, um, very sensitive to friction, which like that's when things I think start to feel a little uncomfortable for me. But meaning with even like the slightest disturbance, the material can and in a lot of cases will detonate. I
1: just gotta emphasize how scary that
0: is. That means like, you drop something, yeah, <laughs> and it explodes, right? Like, well, yeah, be the worst. Yes, or like <laughs> maybe not even that much. Like maybe you don't even have to drop it, and so. With this project, there were like a bunch of procedures in place to keep the graduate students safe while working with such sensitive materials. However, the fifth year student did state that they had only completed some literature reviews to learn about energetic materials, but that there was no other like formal training, safety or otherwise, before officially starting the work. So- Are you serious? Problem numero uno. I'm like a big freak about training. So like- red flag um so at texas tech there was a 100 milligram or 0.1 gram limit whenever you were synthesizing an energetic material so you were only supposed to make it in like very small amounts
1: what's a good reference point for how little that is like what's something common that weighs a gram like a paper
0: clip a small paper clip even a pen cap oh a u.s bill there you go so yeah So this is... A tenth of that, no. A tenth of that. Yeah, less than a tenth of that is what the limit was. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, very small amounts. However, during the incident investigation, it was discovered that the limit was not written down or formalized in any way. Red flag number two. Instead, it was just tribal knowledge and this information was passed down from the PIs to the students. Oh no. So... The two grad students get to work. They knew they had several analytical tests they had to get completed that day. So they made the decision to scale up and synthesize enough for every test that they had to complete. And so they end up synthesizing 10,000 milligrams or 10 grams, which is 100 times more than what their limit was supposed to be this is sounding familiar now. Now I'm remembering. (laughs) Yeah. So the students end up transferring some of the sample and some hexane, it's a solvent, to a mortar and pestle because they've noticed some clumping. Um, They've apparently done this in the past with smaller samples and haven't really had any problems. My assumption is, is that because they probably had enough hexane in there that it kept it wet enough. Or kept the friction down enough. Yeah. And so because of the larger amounts of samples or sample, the hexane didn't get those clumps wet enough. And so when they were using their mortar and pestle, the dry clumps were mixed. The friction then caused the sample to detonate and it actually exploded in the grad student's hand. He ended up losing three fingers suffered from burns to his hands and he suffered it from an eye injury. The explosion was also powerful enough to damage the workbench as well as some of the equipment in the area. And I put a picture in our notes yeah, we'll share that on social media as well. So yeah, very scary. I mean, fortunately, I mean, it's unfortunate that he was injured in the way that he was, but mm-hmm. I think I mean, I got lucky. <laughs> fortunate that he, yeah, those are the only injuries that he walked away with.
1: Well, and like so lucky, especially because they were doing like a bench top thing and not in a fume hood, so he didn't have the that to protect him. And I mean, you could see in the picture that there's broken glass and the bench top, which is like. You probably remember from high school chemistry, like they all had those black
0: (laughs) (laughs) bench tops,
1: like lab bench tops, which like I don't even know what they're made of, but it is like some indestructible material and it is shattered, which is crazy. Like, I don't even think you could do that. So,
0: Unless you explode. Yeah. So there there you go. go. So very scary.
1: Yeah. That sounded familiar as like you started telling it. I remember because it was a big thing about, yeah, like don't try to like scale things up or like do things in huge quantities to make it easier for yourself because you're, yeah, you're risking a bigger hazard.
0: Well, and ultimately reading through this, I mean, it's a perfect example for why safety procedures exist. You know, people roll their eyes all the time. (laughs) Trust me. I know about it. They... (laughs) And I get it. Like a lot of it's not fun, but ultimately it's in place for a reason, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing is having been
1: through grad school and done a lot of lab work and doing lab work on a daily basis, like it's just some things are tedious and you just want to figure out ways to make them more efficient and faster. And so people cut corners or do things like this. (laughs) which is not good. You know, for some reason, I thought the Texas Tech one, I don't know if it happened while I was in grad school or if it was just like sort of one of those stories that like got passed down about lab safety, you know, in that community. But I swear there was also some big explosion in a university lab or fire, at least, that happened because people were storing
0: like enormous 50-gallon drums of like methanol or something in the lab. There's this University of Hawaii one, but this was 2016. So that would have been like the end of grad school for you, right? I would have just left
1: grad school. But like, I remember hearing something about some sort of incident at a university where they were like storing a shit ton of flammable solvents because they were just like, let's order 50 gallon drums of it rather than, <laughs> rather than uh, just little bottles at a time. Well, either way, the Texas Tech one it's a good one, and it's a really good lesson. I mean, they all are because you know you learn something. I learned from doing this that, like, hey, there are whole journals and stuff that people publish like stuff about evaluating what happened in different accidents and stuff, yeah. like industrial and stuff, so what a
0: cool job, right? I know, look at you. <laughs> <laughs> I always said that, like I think safety research is pretty decent, yeah. Anyway, on to your topic. So I'm going to talk about the really big boom. (laughs) (laughs) The the really big boom. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Which I would guess a lot of you remember because this happened during pandemic times. But the first thing that came to my mind when we decided we would talk about explosions and scary chemical accidents was the one that occurred at the port of Beirut on August 4th 2020.
0: I cannot believe this was only two years ago.
1: I honestly thought that it was longer ago as well. And then I was like, this happened during the pandemic. I thought it was like five years ago. Well, nope. (laughs) (laughs) It was just two years ago. All right. This explosion was the result of improper storage of our good friend ammonium nitrate, which, if you will remember from a few minutes ago, is an oxidizer and is great at accelerating the combustion of fuel and is one of those that can become explosive itself when exposed to high temperatures. So not stuff you want to mess around with. The reason that I shouldn't say that I like this example, but <laughs> that this example really sticks in my mind is just that there's a lot of really impressive documentation for this particular incident, you know, partially because of the time that it happened, but also because it started with a fire at a warehouse. So you had sort of smoke going up from that. You had people up on rooftops in the adjacent city. Like this happened in a very busy, you know, metropolitan area. So people were filming it and you have all these like insane videos of the fire and explosions then the aftermath. So it's interesting from that perspective to see it all play out. But a little timeline. So it was a little after 6 p.m. local time that this fire that had started, and I think it hadn't started too much earlier than this, but started to spread to the roof of a warehouse located in the port of Beirut. It's a big port. It's like a huge shipping port. A little bit later, people heard, or you a know, few seconds, few minutes later, people heard a large explosion followed by several smaller ones. And after those small explosions, about 30 seconds later, there's a massive explosion that sends up this enormous mushroom cloud hundreds of feet into the air and a supersonic blast radiating out into the adjacent city and just completely devastating the surrounding area. And Paige, do you remember seeing like all these videos?
0: Yeah, yeah. I was actually yeah. um, just about to ask if you had photos that you were going to post. Of it. Yes. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, I will definitely share photos on Twitter or, you know, put links on our website to good examples of this or to YouTube videos of it happening. It's unreal. Yeah, it's hard to believe that, yeah, <laughs> it's real. So obviously this has been the subject of a lot of investigation in the meantime, but turns out that the fire started in a fireworks warehouse, <laughs> which explains the initial smaller explosions that people heard. This warehouse, which I guess was like maybe not necessarily just fireworks, it was like a hazardous materials warehouse, but it also contained jugs of oil, Mm -hmm. kerosene, hydrochloric acid, and five miles of fireworks fuse material that was wound up on wooden spools. And then the kicker here is that it, also contained over 2,700 tons, which means like over 5 million pounds of improperly stored ammonium nitrate. So basically, whoever put all this stuff in there built a giant bomb. Like it was a ticking time bomb.
0: Yikes. It's not good. Also, I meant to mention this earlier, but for anyone who does work whether it be in a lab or like a chemical manufacturer, somewhere if you're working around chemicals, just generally flammables and oxidizers should not be stored together for this exact reason. Yeah, there are like whole separate cabinets. Like there's a flammables
1: cabinet, but there's like an oxidizer's cabinet.
0: This is the reason why. (laughs) Things are
1: supposed to go in. Yes, they are supposed to be kept separate. So it is an insane thing to keep them all together. So a little bit of background on this ammonium nitrate, because how do you get 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate just sitting there in a random warehouse in the port of Beirut? So this had been abandoned along with the Moldovan ship that it was being transported on back in 2013. And I guess this ship was leaking and the hadn't been paying its bills. So there was like a lot of debt associated with it. So Lebanese authorities at the port of Beirut wouldn't let the ship leave because they owed people money. And the Russian businessman who owned it was just like, well, forget it. He cut his losses and like just left it there. (laughs) Good. Good place (laughs) for it. Yes. So a few months later in early 2014, officials at the port and I guess just like generally in Beirut were alerted to the dangerous cargo that was on the ship. So the ammonium nitrate and reports were sent out and they were immediately ordered to offload it and decided to put it in the aforementioned warehouse. And I guess the ship was like so not seaworthy that it just eventually sinks into the harbor. So they wanted to get it off the ship before it just like sank to the bottom of the harbor and became an underwater explosive hazard. (laughs) So uh, like I said, this warehouse was designated for hazardous materials, and this might make Paige's brain explode. (laughs) (laughs) So if you hear another explosion, that's Paige's brain right now. (laughs) But there was only like improvised electricity running to it. There were no smoke alarms and no sprinkler system (laughs) in a warehouse where they stored fireworks, fuel, and 2,700 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer. (laughs) I'm laughing because it's like, it's just so preposterous that anybody would think that this is okay. Yeah. That. Hindsight is twenty twenty, I guess. <laughs> um, sure, <laughs> but that, that well, it's not even. They knew it was wrong at the time. <sighs> okay, so the ammonium nitrate was stored in these big bags. And you can look at pictures. There's like some of it is spilling out and they are just piled on top of one another in this warehouse. There's no humidity control. And over the years, officials associated with the port of Beirut made several requests to higher ups, I guess, or, you know, others in the city or in the country to have it removed, like do something with it. But No one ends up doing anything. Like those requests are just ignored and sort of just pushed down the line. And in that time, the ammonium nitrate absorbed water vapor from the air, because this is like a humid seaside environment, and turning these like individual small pellets just into like large blocks of of dynamite. (laughs) It's like potentially explosive (laughs) material. (laughs) It's not great here are just some like insane facts about this. This explosion happens. Buildings were completely leveled or extensively damaged in the immediate neighborhood. And by immediate neighborhood, I mean like still like within a radius that's like thousands of feet away. The shockwave blew out windows at the Beirut airport, which is five miles away 50,000 residential houses, 178 schools, nine hospitals were all heavily damaged or completely destroyed, leaving 300,000 people homeless. It released toxic gases that, when combined with the dust generated by the explosion basically continue to pose a health risk to many of Beirut's 2.4 million residents. And if you watch videos of that main explosion, when the ammonium nitrate ignites, you can see that it like goes up as this huge orange cloud. So the color that you're seeing is due to the release of nitrogen dioxide, which is like not a great pollutant (laughs) to be releasing into the air. (laughs) It's like a pretty noxious brown gas. Not excellent. Not excellent. So it's going to get a little heavy. The explosion killed 220 people and injured 6,500 more essentially instantaneously. And I was particularly affected by a quote from epidemiologist Salim Adib, whose office was at the American University of Beirut and was about 500 meters from the explosion site. So close enough that like, he had his walls knocked in and got injured from this explosion. But he said, some of the views in the street were ghastly, absolutely horrendous. They were bodies that were cindered in one piece, transformed into a piece of charcoal. I could only imagine myself in Pompeii the day Vesuvius blew up and transformed people into vitrified mass. So... It's absolutely horrifying. Yeah. My nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. So the resulting explosion crater, so what is left after this happens, is 460 feet wide, which is insane. And the explosion itself blasted a full-on cargo ship out of the water. Again, insane. It was heard in Cyprus, which is about 150 miles away across the Mediterranean. It was equivalent to a 3.3 magnitude earthquake. Uh, It was also equivalent to 1,000 to 1,500 tons of TNT, which is about one-tenth the intensity of the Hiroshima nuclear bomb. But importantly, it has been... Categorized as the third most devastating urban explosion of all time after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki nuclear bombings. So it's like just below nuclear detonation in terms of how bad the damage was. Just from some improperly stored chemicals. Right. A lot of improperly A stored. A lot of improperly chemicals. stored chemicals. So this is where we get to Megan doing her best page impression. and (laughs) We get safety Megan instead of safety page. We're talking about a little bit about what we learned from this event happening. And some of it, they're still investigating. Like, I don't think they know for sure yet why the fire started. I saw one source that indicated that it was like the day that the explosion happened was the day that, you know, somebody in the local government finally sent people over to like do a better job of sealing up the warehouse by, like, welding a hole that was in it. So it's, like, potentially they caught it on fire. Oof. Doing some welding, and then this happened. But I only read that in one... Pl- I mean, it was in the New York Times, but, like, it was only in one place. And I didn't read that in, like, sort of the official safety journal reports. So I'm not, like, I don't know, 100% tied to that hypothesis. But what did we learn? So in Beirut people are in big trouble for this. This was clearly a case of criminal negligence with respect to officials knowing about the hazard for years and years, but doing nothing to address it or like mitigate any possible accident
0: that could have happened. Did you say it was like 2013 it was moved into that warehouse or 2014? Early 2014. So it sat there for six years. So six years.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And it's like they just got lucky that it took that long for this to happen. So this isn't the only incident like this, though. So as like Paige alluded to, this is dangerous stuff. So there have been 11 major incidents involving ammonium nitrate across the world since the 1910s. And by major, I mean defined as involving over a thousand tons of the material and or causing more than 30 deaths. But there have been like a whole lot of other smaller incidents Mm -hmm. that have happened, which I'm sure is what you were also alluding to. But these have happened in the U.S. as well. So one that occurred in Texas at the port of Texas City in 1947 killed over 500 people and occurred when two ships transporting over 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate exploded. So a fire started on one ship triggering its ammonium nitrate to explode, which then started a fire on another ship and triggered its ammonium nitrate to explode. So just bad all bad. (laughs) Um, A more recent incident in the city of West Texas occurred in 2013, which I remember this happening as well, but when a fertilizer plant exploded... And this was about eighty thousand pounds of ammonium nitrate, so a lot less than these other incidents, but still a significant still a yeah, yeah still a significant event, especially when you consider that the Oklahoma City bombing was four thousand pounds of ammonium nitrate yeah so this actually triggered the EPA to issue a new chemical disaster rule under the Obama administration to try and prevent future disasters by tightening up safety regulations related to disclosure and storage of these types of chemicals and also like more requirements for coordination with first responders mm-hmm. basically just saying like in terms of the disclosure side of things i think the idea was you know if you are buying a house that's within a certain radius of one of these factories where they are well, either factories or storage facilities where they're storing large amounts of these potentially dangerous chemicals, like then you have a right to know or the public has a right to know. So surprise, though, (laughs) these requirements were eased by the Trump administration in 2019. A subsequent investigation that was released by the Center for Public Integrity in January of 2020, which I think was in the wake of them easing this chemical disaster rules that were released, indicated that ammonium nitrate isn't as well regulated in the U.S. as it should be, and there needs to be more transparency with the public about it and... (laughs) how dangerous it is and like where it's being stored. The fact remains that ammonium nitrate is easy and cheap to manufacture. So it's probably not going away completely anytime soon as a fertilizer. It is a good fertilizer. It's good at doing the job that it's made to do in that respect. But a combination of innovation in terms of making changes to the material itself, for example, adding coatings to make it a less efficient oxidizer, uh, increasing the development or use of alternative fertilizers that are less hazardous, and then also safer handling and storage regulations would go a long way towards reducing the dangers here. Heck yeah. Safety, Megan. Safety, Megan.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, now you've heard some about explosions, and you've heard both from Safety Page and Safety Megan. Yeah we did serious anything else you wanted to add megan i don't think so all right well that wraps up our episode on lab disasters slash explosions splash 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 explosions (laughs) splash explosions slash scary science slash industrial disasters did you say that already no you did okay tune in for episode 50 on spooky wait 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 wait
1: wait ready
0: <laughs> okay on um, spooky storms is that supposed to come after 50 yeah oh let me show, hold on but you did it after i said spooky storms Oh, no, that's fine okay i don't care if you liked this episode, hit subscribe and share with a friend. You can find us on TikTok at Spooky Science, Twitter and Instagram at Spooky SciPod, Facebook at Spooky Science Sisters, and at our website, sisters.com. If you have any questions about previous topics or ideas for future episodes, email us at Sisters at gmail.com. As always, thank you for listening and stay spooky.
1: Science Sisters is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information or to check out other shows, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else.
0: The importance of the cover design,